Thank you, worship team. Uh, I was thinking, as you're turning to Matthew chapter 10 with me, Matthew chapter 10, uh, if you were not blessed in the music today, uh, probably something wrong between you and the Lord. Like for real, like a suggestion. Uh, if you need to, take one of your vacation days from work. Uh, say, hey, I need a vacation day. And just get you a little VRBO up in the mountains or Lake Junaluska or wherever you need to go. And take you like a case of water and just leave food behind and take your Bible and say, I'm just going to go get by myself and tell one or two people who need to know how to contact you and turn all the other notifications off and just go get with the Lord and say, Lord, I'm missing something because uh, you're in trouble. Uh, you've drifted. So if that describes you, you may want to really say, I need to take some drastic measures uh, to draw close to the Lord. Matthew chapter 10, I want to jump right into the text in just a moment after we remind ourselves where we've been uh, so it helps us as far as where we're going. Uh, in a minute, I'm going to read verses 5 through 15, those 11 verses. Here's the setting, okay? Jesus has been ministering in Galilee, and we have a summary statement at the end of chapter 9. And it says that Jesus went into all the villages and towns, teaching, preaching, and healing. And so that was his ministry, and he drew crowds. And as he drew crowds, literally, it affected his stomach. He had such pity for people, it moved him to compassion, like physically ached. So much so that he told his disciples, several, many, he says, the harvest is plentiful. I mean, the need is so great. And the success in ministry is going to be so great. But the problem is there are very few workers. And so he tells his disciples, again, a larger group, pray to the Lord, pray earnestly, not just tokenly, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest that he would send forth laborers out into the field. We need more laborers. The harvest is plentiful. And then what Luke tells us is that the Lord went Sometime not that long after, I don't know if it was that night or shortly after, he spends all night, he himself having told them to pray, he prays all night long up on a mountain. And then he comes down and then he calls out of his disciples 12 people uniquely to be his apostles. And so apparently he, what he prayed about all night must have been, Lord, we need more laborers in the harvest. And then he comes down and again calls 12. They get a promotion from not just disciples to now apostles. They're going to be empowered back in verse 1. He empowered them to heal and to cast out and to do other things, as we're going to see in a moment in verse number 8, even beyond what we were given there in verse 1. Verses 2 through 4, we saw the names of the 12 apostles, and that brings us to verse 5. So I'll go ahead and tell you, as you look at the beginning of verse 5, these 12 Jesus sent. So I have my Bible open where I can see verse 1, and the Bible says, He called, so there's, He called 12, gave them authority, a power. Now we're down to verse 5, and the Bible says, He sent them. Let me go ahead and kind of let you know where we're at, Matthew does not really spell out their trip. He's going to give us 38 verses of the next phrase. Verse 5 again, these 12 Jesus sent out, so they're called, empowered, sent, but notice, instructing them. So we're going to get 38 verses of instruction from the Lord directly to his 12. Here is the start. We're going to cover the first 11 verses of those 38 verses of instruction. Here, here it begins. 
instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles. So here's your instructions. You've been called. You've been empowered. I'm sending you. Here's your instructions. Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans. In one verse, one half verse, here's what we find. From your perspective, Jesus has said, don't go north into Gentile lands. Don't go east into Gentile lands. Don't go south into the land of Samaria. And we know they have the Mediterranean Sea over to their west. Don't go north. Don't go east. Don't go south. Don't go west. Pretty much, you're going to stay in this area. Doing what? Then who are we going to? Verse 6. But go, rather, to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Don't go to the Gentiles. Don't go to the Samaritans. Go to the house of Israel. What are we to do when we go? And proclaim as you go, saying, here's your message, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Go tell the lost sheep of Israel, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Verse 8 takes us back to what he did in verse 1. Guys, here's more instruction. That's where you're going to go. Here's what you're going to, you're going to say that. Here's what you're going to do. Heal the sick. Heal the sick. Raise the dead. Like, what? Us? Raise? You said, well, really, that never really happened, did it? I don't know. I don't know that they ever did that. I do know that one of them, Peter, raises a woman named Dorcas back to life. That's Acts chapter 10. And that other apostle that we know about, who's the apostle special, to the Gentiles that we talked about last week, Paul, he ends up raising two people from the dead. So we don't know about other specifics, but here's Christ's command. Go heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. Go, that's your message. Here's what I want you to do while you're doing that. Now look at the end of verse 8. He instructs them, You have received without paying. Give without pay. You have received without paying, give without pay. While we're at it, Jesus continues, Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts. So apparently their girdle, they could loop it around and make folds in there, and the center part of the fold is where they would keep their money. Jesus says, you're getting ready to go on this mission trip, acquire no gold, silver, or copper for your belts. Oh, by the way, no bag for your journey, so don't take extra food. Or two tunics. Don't take two tunics or sandals or a staff. What? Why are we not to take these supplies? For the laborer deserves his food. So you don't take these things, but your needs should be met because the laborer, the Lord says, the laborer deserves his food. And more instruction. Whatever town or village out of the 204 that are in Galilee, whatever town or village you enter... Find out who is worthy in it and stay there. So find the house that is worthy in that town or village and stay there until you depart. You're going to be itinerant preachers and teachers and apostles and your message and your miracles and you're going to be in this town. Again, we got 204 to cover and only about two years to do it. Christ is like, I can't do it all by myself. The harvest is plentiful. Lord, we're going to need more laborers. And he multiplies himself into 12. It becomes six groups of two. You guys get out there and start doing these things. And when you go into a house, you're going to stay in that town until it's time to move to the next town. You won't be there very long. Verse 11 again. Find out who's worthy in that town, stay there until you depart. What about that night when we go to the house? As you enter the house, greet it. The greeting here means 
Ask the Lord's favor. Ask the Lord's blessing. Bring your blessing as an apostle of Christ into that house. Verse 13. And if the house is worthy... So you're gone, you're assuming from everything you've gathered, this is a worthy house. If it is a worthy household, then let your peace, your blessing, come upon it. But if it is not worthy, if it's discovered that house is not worthy, then let your peace peace return to you. And as we wrap, wrap up these last two verses, watch what Scripture says. This is the Bible, God's Word. Jesus says, and if anyone will not receive you, Or listen to your words. They're just not going to listen to it. Shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house. What's all that? Done with you. Shake off the dust of your feet when you leave that house or that town. Was this a bad thing for them? Jesus says, truly I say to you, it will be more bearable... On the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Guys, it's not going to be bearable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah and on the day of judgment. Jesus says it'll be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town that rejects your message and rejects you as my apostles. So guys, I want to jump right in if you're keeping notes on the handout. Can I just, I'm going to have several moments today of transparency. This is a little odd as a Bible teacher of a passage, and you as ones who are listening and studying this passage with me, I need to make a confession. Right off the bat, here it is. Several of the instructions that Jesus just gave his apostles in these 11 verses are unique to their short-term mission trip. Did you catch them? Did you catch those things? As we just read these 11 verses, there are several things. If we were to pay attention, if you were to say, I'm going to read these five times at home, you would see the same things that I see that frankly are like, those don't directly coincide with what we're to do. Hey, this is 2020. This is the United States. That's not our action steps, all of those things. Why do we even, okay, let's just read the text and let's maybe move on to something that works for us today. Guys, we still need to study the scripture, okay? So though there are aspects here that do not directly flow into what we do, you say, what are those? Hey, they preach just to Jews. That's not our target audience only, right? Did you catch their message? I'll go ahead and say, their message is not exactly the same as our main message. They're told when you go on a short-term mission trip, don't take any extra supplies. How many of you have been on a short-term mission trip? Would you raise your hand? Okay. When you did, did you have any extra food or did you take a little extra money? And like they're told, no, don't do it. So were we wrong in doing that? Okay, no, that doesn't necessarily apply to us. And then, of course, is it my job really? Is my calling to raise the dead? You're like, yes, preach the gospel and people are raised the dead from life, from sin to spiritual life. No, 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 this is physical. That's not my calling. I don't think my calling is to go around healing people physically. It's not my calling to necessarily cast out demons and heal people of leprosy. That was their calling. So here's my point. Even though as we're going through this, there are things that are unique to them, we can still learn principles and lessons that apply to us today. And we want to smatter those in there while mainly dealing with the text in its context there with their trip. Notice number one out of four things this morning. Number one, their unique assignment. They had a very unique assignment. You see it in verses five and six. 
Jesus' instructions begins with something, frankly, that's very unique. Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans. Don't go there and don't go there. Don't go tell them anything and you don't go tell them anything. And we hear that today and we're like, that does not sound like Jesus. Some even question, did Matthew make this up? No, he didn't. Jesus said this. So what's going on? Before we talk about Gentiles, so we kind of know, I hope everyone in here knows there are Jews and then there's kind of everybody else and we're Gentiles. But maybe as a subgroup under those Gentiles, we're introduced to a group here called the Samaritans. I realize that most of you know who they are, but let's kind of refresh, and for sake of those, we had to learn at some point, someone had to tell us, who are these Samaritans? Watch, here we go. In ancient Israel, about 3,000 years ago, they asked for a king. God gave them Saul about 40 years. He wasn't a good king. He gets replaced by David for about 40 years. Great king. David has a son, Solomon. Solomon rules over the United Kingdom, I think 30 or 40 years. I forget how long that was. So that's about 100, 110, 120 years. But then after Solomon, there's a split and there's a civil war and they end up with a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom in Israel. Fast forward another 250, 260 years and here's what we find. The Assyrians, not Syria. Frankly, it's what we call modern day Iraq had a capital city at that time called Nineveh. They were very, very powerful. They were the biggest dog on the block. They started conquering everyone, and the Assyrians conquered the northern tribes of Israel. Watch what happened. Two things. They exiled most of the Jews who were in Israel and carried them away to other Gentile lands that they had conquered. So when they conquered a place, they move you out of your homeland. They didn't take all of the Jews out. They took the wealthiest, the most powerful, and frankly, the most gifted, and they moved them to other places. Now, they left the poorest of the Jews behind. Second thing that happened is other Gentiles, when they conquered their lands, they uprooted them and made some of them move to the northern tribes of Israel. So now you have a few Jews, the poorest, and now all of a sudden these new Gentiles. Here's the problem. Those Jews that were left behind broke Old Testament laws and intermarried with those Gentiles. And out of that came a new mixed race of people that we call the Samaritans. They started their own religious system. They had their own temple mountain. They did their own sacrificial system. They were even looking for their own Messiah to come. This creates enormous animosity between the Jews. Remember, some Jews were carried away. They did not intermarry with Gentiles. They only married other Jews. Fast forward a few hundred more years, and the southern tribes of Israel are also conquered, this time by the Chaldeans, the Babylonians. They're also exiled, but they don't intermarry with Gentiles. Fast forward to the time of Christ. Here's what we have. We have this section in the middle. So you have Galilee and you have Judea. Right in the middle are those compromising Jews, and there's a lot of animosity. And here Jesus says, don't go down there and give them the message of the kingdom. And don't go north or east and give the Gentiles the message of the kingdom. You kind of see what's happening here. This is a very unique to them assignment. Hold your spot here. Go back one page, if you would. Chapter number 8. Actually, it may be two pages. In my Bible, it's two pages. Go back to chapter 8. What about these Gentiles? Notice what Jesus says in verse 11 of chapter 8. Jesus talking. I tell you, watch this, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. What does that mean? Jesus knows full well. He says, I'm telling you, my audience, he's bragging on a Gentile. 
A Gentile centurion has more faith than anybody that he's seen in Israel up to this point. Jesus is really like so much bragging on this man. He tells his Jewish audience, I tell you what, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. While meanwhile, here's the idea, meanwhile, the quote idea sons of the kingdom, the supposed sons of the kingdom, he's talking about Jews, the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. The outer darkness is the furthest away from the light. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So what does this mean for us? Here's what it means. Jesus knows full well about Gentile inclusion at this point. He knows about, he's the son of God. Him and the Father and the Spirit in eternity past foreordained a church that would be blended into one, Jews and Gentile. Jesus knows this fully. But at this point in history, some 2,000 years ago, before the cross, the need, it was necessary for the message about the kingdom being at hand to be taken to the Jews first. It must be taken to the Jews. He knows about Gentile inclusion. That's going to come. Right now, the message is to the Jews first. Why? Lord, why? What are you doing? Let me give you two reasons why the Lord designed it and gave them such a unique assignment. Number one, hey, what I'm about to say, you say, I don't like that. Listen, you don't have to like it, but you better accept it. God loves the Jews. They are his chosen people. They have a special place in the heart of God. Why do they get told the message about the kingdom. Why do they get told the gospel first, even in the book of Acts? Because they are the chosen people of God. Secondly, we could give other reasons, but for time's sake, just, just two. The Jews know that they have a very clear and very specific covenant promise from God about their Messiah. Can I go ahead and say, at this point in history, the, G- the Gentiles, though it was there and it was veiled and kind of hidden in the Old Testament... It's not out front. At this point, we Gentiles didn't have a claim to a very specific covenant promise from God. You say, well, wait a minute, Jeff. What about the everyone who calls and all and the whosoever? Right, that's coming. At this point, the message is to the the Jews to hear the gospel first. Hold your spot. Again, like last week, we're getting all of our passages out front early in the message, in the first point. And then we'll be focusing back again on chapter 11. Go with me, if you would, Acts chapter 13. Acts 13. I want you to turn over there. Oh, and by the way, I think I skipped a Mark passage earlier. I did. Sorry about that. Uh, All that did was say that Jesus actually sent them out and the apostles went. That was the Mark 6 passage I should have had on the screen. That's fine. Um, Again, the disciples did go and they did heal people and they did cast out unclean spirits. Matthew doesn't necessarily give us the mission trip. He gives us the instructions up before it and implies that it happened. Now, here we are after the cross. Here we are after the church has started. We are years past Pentecost. We're years into the church age at this point. And now Paul is on the first missionary journey with Barnabas. I wish I'd had on the screen, and you're going to have an advantage if you have your Bible open, because I'm going to go back and read verse 38 in a moment. Here's what's happening. 
Paul has gone into what we call Turkey, a little town called Antioch. There's like 16 Antiochs in ancient time. This is not the large one. This is one in the mountains of Turkey. Paul and Barnabas come to this place of Antioch, and they give a message. It's like 27 verses long, and if, I don't have time to read all the message because it's very Jewish in its perspective. I would title the message, How to Win a Jew to Christ 101. And so Paul goes in and preaches in the synagogue. Watch his culmination. If you have your Bible open, look at verse 38. Then Paul says, let it be known to you, therefore. He's preaching in a Jewish synagogue. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man. So he's gone through the history of Israel. Come up to David. From David, he jumps off and jumps over to Jesus and how Jesus is the Messiah and how the Jews in Jerusalem killed the, their, their Messiah. But Jesus was risen from the dead and he has these witnesses and everything's on track. Verse 38 again, Paul tells his Jewish audience, let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, his Jewish audience, and by him, watch this word, everyone. What? I don't know that they caught it that first Saturday. He says, through this man, my Jewish audience, through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you and by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. It's to you, oh, by the way, it's to everyone who believes. Now jump down to verse 42. What happens after this message where Paul preaches to a Jewish synagogue congregation about Jesus being the Messiah and the Savior of the world? Verse 42, here's what happens. As they went out, so picture, let's say that we're a Jewish synagogue, and it's that Saturday. As they went out, the people begged. They've never heard this. You're telling us the Messiah has come. You're telling us the Messiah died on a cross and it was to pay for our sin. We've, how come we haven't heard this? Because we're just now getting to you. Verse 42. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Saturday. Hey, guys, is, this, is there any chance you can come back next Saturday and do this all over again? And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, Many Jews and devout converts to Judaism. So they're still Jews. Those are just Gentiles who became Jewish proselytes and converts. What happened? The meeting breaks up. Many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas. And you, you get the picture. These are the people who really connected. Who, as they spoke with them, urged them, Hey, sounds like you really understood and you really connected. Hey, continue in the grace of God. Now, as Luke's recording for us in the book of Acts, verse 44, he jumps ahead a week. The next Sabbath, here we go, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. Could you guys possibly come back next week? So all of a sudden, I think what happened is these Gentiles who became Jewish proselytes hear this, and they go out, and maybe they heard the everyone part. They go out, and they start telling everybody around town so that you got to come next Saturday and hear this thing. This is amazing. What we, it's like happened. And so the next week, the whole city shows up. This is great. This is going to be awesome. Verse 45, no, when the Jews saw the crowds, who's all, who's all these people? They've never been here. These are Gentiles. Verse 45, when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. How Paul and Barnabas resp respond to that. Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly saying, oh really? Well, here we go. It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. And Paul's, Paul's a Jew of the Jews, right? He loves the Jews. He would literally go to hell for the Jews, but he's going to call it like it is. He says, hey, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first. Can I add the word but right here? 
But since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you. Paul says, since you don't want to hear it, I'm going to the Gentiles because the Lord has commanded us, I've made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Well, how was, how was that responded to? And when the Gentiles heard this, oh, you're going to let us in on this. Are you telling us that if we put our faith in this Savior, we can have our sins? When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. Watch this phrase. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. So the Gentiles heard and the Gentiles believed. You have to believe to go to heaven. Which ones believed? The ones that were ordained and appointed to eternal life. Jeff, why did you have us turn there? Watch, we're back in Matthew, eight, uh, Matthew chapter 10. Would you go back there? Many, many Jews, I believe, as the apostles are making their rounds, I believe that many Jews are accepting the message of the apostles. But I'm going to say, again, many will accept their message as it's going only to them. But none of the Jews would have accepted that message had they known or heard. Did you tell Gentiles before you told us? You say, Jeff, how do you know that? When we read the book of Acts, the church in its infant stage, in fact, even for years, is only Jewish. It's bottled up in Jerusalem and in Judea. Finally, persecution comes, and it makes the church spread out. And as the church goes, they begin to share the gospel, even with Jews. And particularly when men like Paul go share the gospel with Gentiles, and we Gentiles start latching onto it, and we get saved, by and large, as a whole, there are a few Specific remnant Jews who continue to believe, most Jews take this attitude. If they're getting in on it, it must not be from God, and he's not the real Messiah. We don't even want to hear any more about it, and they rejected even listening to the gospel. So if you're taking notes, write this down. Jesus' restrictions in Matthew chapter 10, verses 5 and 6 were necessary. It was proper for the Jews to hear it first. And it was necessary, but it was Temporary. Because this, these restrictions, by, before we get to the end of the book, you know full well, they will give way to what we now call the Great Commission to go and make disciples of all the nations. I said earlier that, hey, some of these things don't go directly with our action steps, but there are still lessons, right? There are still lessons. Before I hit the second point today, let me give you a quick lesson. You say, Jeff, our target audience is not the same as theirs, so what's the lesson for us? If you, if you thought about it, get what he says. Jesus is saying, don't go there, don't go there, and you don't go down there. Go to this group, watch, here's the lesson for anyone in ministry. Focus on that group. That's your target. So guys, you say, Jeff, we're supposed to be winning the world. That is our mission. You know how you win the world? We'll send a missionary out. We'll say, we don't send them out. Go win the world. No, we send them to Albania or to Indonesia or to Morocco or to Germany or to Jamaica or Haiti or Mexico. We send them, but then even there, we don't send them to that whole nation. We send them to a town or a village. And at the end of the day, they're not just going to the whole town or a village. They're going to somebody at a coffee shop that's sitting directly across from them. Here's our lesson. 
Yes, we're to win the world, but are we focused in our ministry? You can't just be scattered in ministry. You've got to have a focus to ministry. That's the takeaway for us. What is your focus in ministry? Answer that. What is, what is your focus? Who is your focus in ministry? My particular focus, one of mine right now, is to preach through the book of Matthew on Sunday mornings. That's one of my focuses. I want to teach and preach a congregation of people and help us to learn what the Word of God says so that we can live the life that the Lord wants us to, have biblical thinking and biblical lives that glorify God and worship Him. This is my focus, all the while being evangelistic as much as I can and doing the work of an evangelism, but focusing on pastoral teaching and preaching. That's my focus. What is your focus? Is it where you work? Is it where you teach? Is it your neighbor? Is it your family? Minister. But what is your focus? You need one. Number two. Would you notice with me, not only their unique assignment, notice their core message and credentials. Their core message and credentials we see in verses 7 and 8. Jesus says, And proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. What's their message? It's the kingdom has come. And what is this kingdom? And I realize I'm repeating. But the kingdom is not just the sovereign rule of God that is always in place. Their particular message is, again, very unique to them. The message for them is that there is a, by the way, this applies to us, there is a literal kingdom, a literal visible, where Jesus will be walking on this earth, and that is going to come, and it's going to last a thousand years, and I can tell you when it's going to happen. You say, Jeff, hold on. No man knows the day or the hour, so you can't know when it's going to happen. I don't know the day or the hour, but I know the description of the time when it will happen. You say, when will the kingdom come? When will the kingdom, the thousand-year reign of Christ on this earth, happen? It will happen when the Jews who are on the earth as a whole look to Christ and recognize Him and accept Him as their Christ, as their Messiah, then we will enter the kingdom and not before that. And so here's what's happening. These apostles are sent to tell the the Israelites in Galilee, the kingdom has come. Here's the message. Ladies and gentlemen, the king that our people have been looking for and longing for and anticipating and has been prophesied for 2,000 years going back to Abraham, 2,000 years ago to us was their message that 2,000 years before that, 4,000 years ago for us, We've been looking for this Christ, the Messiah. Here's the message. Guys, he's in this land. He is literally only miles from where you're at right now. The Messiah is on the earth now. You are in the time period that the kingdom is being offered. The kingdom is at hand. We are literally on the edge. How you respond will determine if the kingdom begins. Mark says that they began to teach and preach for people to repent because the kingdom was at hand. You say, wait a minute. That sounds like John the Baptist. That sounds like the same message Jesus gave. It is. Same message. Go tell them the kingdom of heaven is at hand, therefore repent. Jews, people of, 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 of Israel, do you want the kingdom to come? Here's what you must do. You must have a deep and thorough change of your mind about your sin. You must have a total change of mind about yourself. You are not good enough. You have to have a total change of mind about this man named Jesus of Nazareth, that he is your Christ and Messiah. You say, Jeff, how'd the message go? Well, they listened. A few believed. But for the most part, as Israel's king was offered, 
as a whole, following their leadership, they rejected Jesus as their king, so much so that they crucified him. Praise the Lord, the story doesn't stop there. Because his rejection and his crucifixion on a cross was foreordained and was part of the sovereign plan of God that God would use his death on a cross to pay for the entire world's sin. And so that's part of the... They didn't know all those details. All they know is he's among us right now. He's offering himself as your king. Will you take him? And they reject and crucify. You say, Jeff, so where do we stand then? If they rejected Jesus, I guess God will send them another one. No. Israel has one king. Jesus is their king. You say, well, then if he's their king, we'll never get to the kingdom. Listen carefully. The time is going to come at the end of the tribulation period where it will be horrible for the Jews, especially for the Jews. But at that time, Jesus, the same Jesus, will come again, and he will again present himself to the nation of Israel. And this time, the Bible says, the next time, they will see him, they will recognize him, they will accept him, and they will run to him, and in Christ will protect the nation, his people. He will protect the Jews against the armies of the Antichrist. And I can go ahead and tell you, after some very light and quick work with the armies of the Antichrist, Christ, the kingdom of God will begin when the Jews accept their Messiah, their Christ. So before I move on to their credentials, I've got to ask you guys a question. Recent events in our country, what's it doing to you? I, I find myself, I, I'm torn. I, I kind of need to know what's going on, but frankly, I don't like knowing what's going on. And that, that's tough. I kind of need to watch and maybe read some things, but I can't take it. But literally just a few minutes, and it just kind of churns me up. I start getting frustrated. I get disheartened. I get angry, right? It's like, what do you do? Just turn it off, and, well, stuff's going on, and then we're going. Here's where I found. I want to I ask an honest question. I want everybody in here to answer it. Be honest. Do the recent events in, in our world, in our country, is it causing you to think about the kingdom of God more? Am I the only one? Like literally, I started hearing about Jesus coming, his second coming. I remember specifically 1982 hearing a lot about Jesus coming back. And I'd get excited and then I'd forget. And for the most of those years, I don't think about it. And I don't think about it all the time. But I want to tell you, once I let my frustration go down, it, I hope it drives me like, Lord... Lord, just a few months ago when I was preaching through Jesus' model prayer in Matthew chapter 6, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Lord, you know that I've been struggling praying that prayer because I know that your kingdom is preceded by a lot of pain. Guys, I realize that. I've kind of struggled. The Lord knows. I've said this. I've struggled to pray, Lord, let your kingdom come because of all that's going to happen so negatively before that. You know where I'm at lately? Lord, rip the Band-Aid off. Let's get this show on the road. That's where I'm at today. Don't you, like really, guys, don't you just want the whole curse of sin on this world just removed? Don't you want to live in a world of righteousness instead of this mess, this cesspool that we're living in right now in the United States? Things have changed so much in the last two months, it's ridiculous. Between a pandemic and protests and riots, and it's like, what's going on? Lord, just, just go ahead and come on back. And I really especially want to get rid of this old body that is so prone to inappropriate anger and temptations. I just... Or just come on back. I just want to be with you. Don't you want a literal kingdom where Jesus is walking through the grass and the grass is bending over because 
God, the God-man is on the planet. That's what I want. And so here we have this situation, and these guys are going around and offering, literally, I thought, what if the Jews had accepted? And I know in the economy of God it wasn't going to happen, but what if they would have accepted Christ as their king? They didn't. They rejected. But here's the apostles. That's their message. And I'm sure that somebody would be in those towns and asking this, hey, 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 that, that, that sounds great. How do we know that you're telling the truth? You two guys, we don't really know you. You come in, say your name's Peter, that's your brother Andrew, that's nice, or you and that's your brother John over there. Who are you two guys? How do we know that you're telling us the truth? I imagine that the disciples, as we now focus for just a moment on verse 8, Jesus says, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, and cast out demons. I imagine the apostles saying, that's a wonderful question, it's a very fair question, so here's the answer. You know I'm telling the truth because of this man, Jesus, that we're his followers. He is the Messiah. The kingdom is at hand. Here's how you know. He has given us special power. It's his power, but he's given it to us. Here's what we want you to do. Picture it. Let's say we're a synagogue. Here's what we want you to do. We want you to go out and get your sick. Listen, we're not bringing our sick from town to town, heal the same sick every town. We're not doing that. You go get people that you know are sick. Go get the worst of them. I mean, bring any of them. Bring anybody you want that has any malady whatsoever. You bring them here, and we'll show you the power of God, and you'll know that we are the men of God giving you the message of God. You got somebody that's filled with demonic possession? You bring them, and we'll cast out those devils, and you will then know. We're not going to bring them. You go bring any, bring all of them, and that's exactly what happened. And the miracles of God began to flow through the apostles. I hammered this last week, so I'm just going to give it one sentence. Those miracles, God's miraculous power that was working through the apostles, yes, it helped many, many people. It helped those people, but it mainly validated them as the true messengers of God. That's how we know who we should read after and whose word we should trust and follow. So if you look one more time at verse 8, heal the sick, raise the dead. This is Jesus instructing him. Hey, guys, what I did in verse number 1, I really meant it. Now, here's what I want you to do. You go preach this, and you go do that. Get out there, if you're taking notes. Go out there and meet people's needs physically and spiritually. Go meet their needs as an expression of God's kindness, as an act of God's kindness, but also as an avenue of the gospel. Go use the power and then they will know that your message is true. It'll be an act of God's kindness. It'll be an avenue for the gospel. So as I kind of wind down, I have one more quick thought before we hit our third point this morning. Third point has lots of easy applications in it that really applies to us today in several ways. But I need to point this out. Did everybody catch this? We're talking about their core message and their credentials. Their credentials is their power. I believe our credentials are that our message matches the word of Christ and that we show the love of Christ, and that's how people will know. I want to respond to that person. Their message has power because it matches the word of God, and they do these things for me. They just The, the love of the Lord Jesus flows through them. Those are our credentials. Did y'all notice that our message is not the exact same as their message? You say, wait a minute, it's, it's the gospel. They overlap, but ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to tell you, when I talk to people about Christ, my main message is never, hey, let me tell you that the kingdom of God is at hand. That's not how I present it. I'm talking about the same Lord Jesus, but how I present what is our message is this. This man, Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible, is the Son of God. 
And as the Son of God, and as a man, fully God, fully man, he died on a cross to pay for the sins of the whole world. And it becomes effective to every person who puts their faith and trust in him as Lord and Savior. That's our message. You can see how it's a little bit different than that of the message of the apostles being sent on this unique assignment. If you're taking notes, write this down. God sent them as messengers, and today God still sends us as his messengers. Little different credentials, little different assignment, but ultimately we are still to go. Why? Because if specific people do not hear the specific gospel, they cannot be saved. Cannot be saved. I'll say it again. If specific people do not hear the specific gospel, the specific gospel of salvation is only by faith in Christ, If every individual person doesn't hear that specific gospel, there's no way they can be saved. That's why God sends his messengers even today. So the principle for us, the takeaway for us in the second, though their message is a little different and their credentials are a little different, here's the takeaway for us. Here's the principle. Christians, everybody in here, do you know our message? Do you give our message? I was very encouraged this week, got to talk with a couple of men who were talking about assignment from our men's group. So we have three men's group, and they've had an assignment to share their faith in the previous either month or week, very specifically with someone. And I was able to hear how the Lord had worked that out because I'd been thinking, are our people, are we sharing the faith with specific, think of someone right now, who's somebody in your life, let them come in your mind. Get a person, hurry, hurry, all right. That person in your mind, have they heard the gospel? You say, well, yes, the person, they've heard the gospel many times. All right, quick, think of someone in your life that you think, I think that so-and-so may not have heard the specific gospel about Jesus. I wonder, I wonder if they've heard, have you got somebody? Think of somebody you think, they may not, they're in my life somehow, they may not have heard the specific gospel. Then you tell them. You tell them, number three. As we're looking at Matthew 10, verses 5 to 15, notice number 3, their practical provision. We find this verses 8 to 13, their practical provision. Can I read these verses again? Will you follow along? At the end of verse 8, the end of verse 8, Jesus tells his apostles, you received without paying, give without pay. Hey, guys, when you go, acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, or two tunics, or sandals, or a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. And whatever town or village you enter, find out who in it is worthy and stay there until you depart. And as, as you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, then let your peace come upon it. But if it's not worthy, let your peace return to you. Let's talk for a little bit about their practical provision. First thing, here's what we notice. When the apostles went on their short-term mission trip, they were not to set a fee for their work or their message. Don't set a fee for your work, all your healing. Don't set a fee on your message. Don't you give a set price for your ministry. So we look at that and we think about that. I want to give you three reasons they were not to set a fee for their work. Number one, guys, you can't charge for this, number one, because, yes, listen carefully first. Everybody listen. Yes, you have secret information that the rest of the people don't know. You know who I am. You know I'm the Messiah. You know the kingdom is at hand. Yes, only a few of you know that. But listen, how did you get that information? 
You say, you say, but I know some things that other people don't know, and they need to know it, and I know it, and they need to pay to get my information. The Lord's answer is, no, you didn't pay anything to get the information. The only way you know what you know is because the Lord illuminated and revealed himself, so you don't charge for what you didn't pay to get. Jesus revealed himself to them, no cost. Number two, it's the same in our lives. So whatever we know about the Lord, the Lord's given to us freely. Second reason, you can't charge because God's the one who supplies the power. It's as though the Lord is saying in verse, at the end of verse 8, you received without paying, so give without pay. Why can't they charge? It's not your power. Hey, track with me for a second. I wonder if Christ, in essence, is saying this. All right, hey, Peter, Thomas, James, you paying attention? How much did you guys pay to be able to heal people of their diseases, to cast out demons, to heal leprosy, and to raise the dead. We can raise the dead. How much did you pay? You have the ability to raise people from the dead. How much did you pay for that? Nothing. Then don't charge. Third reason. They're not to charge a fee for their work and their message because, to me, this is the main one. What price can you set on their work? I want you all to track with me for a moment. What price can you set on their work? Ladies and gentlemen, if you had the power to cast out demons and heal all diseases and raise the dead, what is your work worth? Healing someone's disease, how much is that worth? To raise someone's loved one back from the dead, they need him, he's gone. We don't have government programs. We're going to starve. We need him back alive. He's back alive. What's that worth? To cast out demons. That demon is in that person destroying their life and just ruining all the people around them's life. And now it's not in there. What is that worth? Guys, I want you to really feel this. Just pretend. This is really pretending. What if I had the power of an apostle? And tomorrow, I call the local CBS channel, the one that's at the base right there of Main Street Greenville, and they have that little glass window, right? And, and they broadcast from there their local station. What if I, I had the, the power of an apostle, and I called and I warned them, hey, just giving you a heads up. I know you have camera people there. Right outside your door, you're going to see a crowd start gathering because I'm going to start telling people that I can heal anything they bring to me. And if I were to go down there and just set me up a table, and I had a little sign-up sheet, and I said, spread the word, bring your blind. Could you imagine if the blind people in the upstate and their family members said, if this guy really can do it, and all of a sudden, I start healing blind people. And then more and more blind people, and I said, hey, wait, wait, I want to see your tax forms. I want to know what you can afford. Picture it. I want to know. I'm going to charge more if you can afford more. How much is your loved one's sight worth? You want them to see. 50,000 is nothing. Come on. Done. 50,000. 50,000. 30 for you. I know you're not quite as... 30, it's their sight. What's your hearing worth to you? I see you don't have an arm. How much would you give for that arm? I see you have a prosthetic leg. What would you give for that leg? Back? Hey, you over here, your skin is the way it is. I'm going to cure your skin. Hey, those of you that have nerve pain all the time and no one can put their finger on, you spent thousands and thousands of dollars and it always is in your life. Line them up. What will you give me today to cure your nerve pain and give you relief of that? Guys, I'm telling you, by the end of the day, I'll be a millionaire. 
I'd be a multi-millionaire. You know what Jesus is saying? You can't charge for this. Now, all of that is totally trumped by this. What do you charge for someone who tells you how to escape hell and go to heaven? Priceless. You cannot put a price on it. What do I owe Ed Yeoman for leaving his church in Greenville to drive up to North Carolina in 1979 to spend some time with a bunch of little knucklehead kids at a Bible camp and tell me about Jesus? What do I owe Ed Yeoman? You can't put a price on it. What do I owe my, grand, my, my uncle for putting that camp on? What do I owe Papa for preaching the actual night that I got saved? You can't put a price on that. Jesus is like, you don't charge. Don't charge for what you do. I remember where I was at. I was at a restaurant and maybe about a year ago. I don't remember the exact time. I got very upset. I heard about a preacher that was paid $5,000 to preach in a Christian college's chapel. You, say, you ought to get upset about that. That's not what upset me. I thought, that is ridiculous. And I mean, they have a job. They have a paying job. $5,000. What really upset me is that they were very dissatisfied with the $5,000 and they were negotiating with the school before they would preach again because they make a lot more than $5,000 to preach at other venues because they'd gotten a bigger name. I heard that and I was like, they don't know me, but shame on you. You're not in the preaching of the gospel for money. What are you doing? $5,000 isn't enough. Have you lost your mind? Read Matthew chapter 10. You don't get in it for the money. It's the wrong approach. Look at verse 9 again. Hey, acquire no gold or silver or, or copper for your belts. Don't do it. You don't take back. Let's, I'm going to take two tunics in case we have to sleep out under the stars. No, you don't take two tunics. So what's our message? The message, and this is a key principle that applies to us. They were to rely and trust on God's provision. Now watch what happens here. They're going to trust on God's provision and the hospitality of other people. You'll see that in the text. As Jesus comes down to the end of verse 9, he says, For the laborer deserves his food. You, don't, you give without pay because you received without paying. You give without pay. Don't you take a lot of extra supply. Take what you have. That word acquire means don't go out and get more. I think they could take what they have, but don't go, you know, store up for your journey. You just go and trust the Lord and then trust the provision that the Lord's going to supply through the hospitality of other people. Watch what happens here. There's a blending of, and, a, and a, a balance between... Two groups. Here's the proper approach, okay? There's a proper balance between those who are ministering and those who are receiving, and the Lord speaks to each group. And so today I realize I've, I've had to do this just a few times. This is frankly very uncomfortable, but I've kind of made up my mind, you know what, Jeff, just shoot straight, get across the point of the text because you're going to give an account to God for what you say. To those in ministry who are even thinking about ever going into ministry of any type, can I offer what I believe is the right biblical perspective? It is this. Here's your question. So again, we have those who are ministering and we have those that serve and each has a responsibility. Those of us and those of you 
who are on the ministering side, can I tell you the question you need to ask yourself? It's real simple. Here's the question. Has God called me to this particular work? That's your question. Has God called me to this particular work? Yes or no? This is not the question. This is never the question. How much does it pay? Wrong question. Not the right question. But what does it pay? I've got this and I've got this one and I've got that one. Listen to me. Our world is full of people. That's how they make their career choices. When you're in the ministry, that is not how you make your career choices. I got that one, that one, and that one. What's that one paying? What are you paying? What are, what are you offering? Well, listen, listen over here. Just want to let you know. Listen over here. Stop it. That's the wrong approach. I want to give a couple examples, and I'm telling you, the Lord knows my heart. It is not to try to make Deanna and I look good. It's to try to illustrate something. It's 1994. I've used this several times. 1994, I was making $20,000 doing pest control in Greenville. Long story short, ended up getting an offer to be an assistant pastor in Kentucky, and they were going to pay me $30,000, so I was going to get a 50% pay raise. But as I prayed about it and tried to answer that question, has the Lord called me to this particular work? The answer just kind of came back, that's just not the Lord's will for me. A few months later, there was open position right here in Anderson, so we're living in Greenville, of a Christian school. And what it could pay at that time for me was $11,500. They couldn't do any better because they really tried to keep tuition really low. And in order to do that, nobody was getting rich over there, obviously. And so long story short, I ended up taking, feeling the Lord's leading. So the question was not what it pays. If it was about what it pays, then take the Kentucky job. The Lord's will for me at that time was not that one. Take this one. And so instead of a 50% pay raise, you're going to take a 40% pay cut. Why? This is the Lord's will. I still to this day look back to those years, and it would increase a little, little through the years, but never making a lot of money. I still to this day look back and I'm like, Lord, I have no idea how you caused us to survive. I was talking with someone again, not to paint us in a good light. It was four years ago, right around this time. So Deanna and I, our wedding anniversary was this past Monday, June 22nd. Uh, four years ago, it was our 25th. So this week was our 29th. It was our 25th. I was without a job. I'd been let go from where I was on a pastoral staff. Different scenario, different reasons for that. I was let go and my severance was running out. It went from like February to June, and it was, it was pretty much gone. We, by faith, decided, you know what, we're still going to do, even though we can't really afford it. It's 25th. We wanted to go stay at a certain little bed and breakfast in Charleston, and so we treated ourselves to three nights at this bed and breakfast. Guys, I remember where I was sitting. Deanna was in the bathroom of our unit, and I was on the little balcony of William's room. That's the name of it, little green at the bed and breakfast, and I got a phone call, and Gary, I think it was you, called and said, Brother Jeff, uh, you're going to be our next pastor. And I remember telling Deanna, like, we're going to eat at a little better restaurant tonight. Than, uh, I didn't have a job. You understand? I didn't have a job. And it was right around, it was either late, late June or early July, and I started August 1st. I said all that for this reason. I promise you, it's not to make us look good. I look back later. I wouldn't die for this information, but I'm 99% sure I was accepted here and accepted the position of pastor before I ever had a clue what I was going to make. I think, Brother John, you're like, oh, by the way, here, I need you to sign here. Oh, oh, okay. So this, oh, okay, it's good. I, I'm going to get paid. This is good. Uh, and it is good. Wrong question is, what does it pay? The right question is, is that where I'm supposed to be called? And I was supposed to be here. 
They only, Gary, I think you told me later, they only received two resumes and mine was one. I have no idea. The Lord loves me. I mean this. You, if I drop dead today, y'all are the best congregation there is. You are the best congregation there is. If I drop dead today, there should be a thousand resumes come in here. There was only one, and praise the Lord, he blinded the, the search committee to the other guy, and somehow they stumbled on me, and I accepted. And I'm so glad we did. The Lord loves me. But there's a balance to this. Would you look at the end of verse number 10? For the laborer deserves his food. Lord, why are we not supposed to charge a fee? Why is our attitude that we're going to, in essence, do your work at no charge? Because verse 10b reveals that there's another practical responsibility of those who are served. And what is that? Help meet the needs of God's messengers. Now, I got very upset with someone that I mentioned that someone I thought already made plenty of money for their services negotiating for more. Let me tell you something else that frustrates me, and it's not the case here at Graceview. You want to know why some people set fees for their work in ministry? Because all the time, people in ministry get taken advantage of. Happens all the time. Just taken advantage of. Uh, saw that happen recently. I know someone put 20 hours into something. They were invited by another ministry to do a specific assignment, put 20 hours into it, and they got to thank you. That's wrong. That's not right. That's not right. Hey, you apostles, you go, you work. You give the message and you do the work and you do it for free. But hey, by the way, you're worthy of your food. You're worthy of your labor. I'll say it this way, and again, I'll speak kind of bluntly. Some churches could do a whole lot better than they do with their staffs, but they keep them living meagerly by faith. They could do a whole lot better. But here's what really burns me up. There are people who are on the decision-making panel or group that sets their staff's meager, make-them-live-by-faith salaries. But in their own private lives, they're out negotiating for higher wages in their own life. It's wrong. There are people that literally, they, they don't think about it, but when they hear it right now, if this literally is their theology. They have a belief that those who are in the ministry, they do need to live by faith. But let me tell you something. Living by faith is good for God's messengers and servants, and it's good for every person in the whole church. Living by, it goes both ways. There are people that have this thought, yeah, those in ministry need to live by faith, but in their own life, they don't live by enough faith to make a tithe on a regular basis. They'll throw a little token money every now and then. They don't live by faith because they don't think God will supply their needs, but they think those people need to live by faith. You got whacked out thinking if you're thinking that way. Totally wrong. Sin. Because here's what I found. I don't remember where I heard it first. Sorry for getting all riled up today, but that's where the text takes us. There's a practical side. Here's the practical side. You know these grocery stores and the mortgage company and the power company and the gas company and the department stores when you need clothes and shoes and the mechanic shop? One thing we found out, they don't accept faith as a form of payment. They just don't. Oh, you need to leave by faith. So when you go to, they go to the mechanic shop and he says, hey, you need 347 bucks. 347, okay, listen, I'm living by faith. What will that get me? What? I'm on the live by faith over at the church. I don't know anything about that. I need $347. That's what he's going to say. So there's a practical side. Would you look at verse 11? Look at verse 11. Whatever town or village you enter, find out who's worthy in it, and you stay there until you depart. Find out who's worthy and stay there until you depart. 
there's probably a few different ideas. What does this worthy house, worthy town mean? Can I offer a blend of what I think? I think it means multiple things. Everybody listen. We're going to hear it, and then we'll write it, okay? A wor- ready, watch. A worthy house is one that is a moral house, not perfect, but they're going to be a moral house. If you're going to minister to Jews, you better be living in a house and staying in an accommodation that is proper and right. Again, not perfect, but trying to live by the law of the Lord and what they, the lifestyle that they knew was pleasing to the Lord. Here's a worthy house. Let's hear it first. A worthy house is not only a moral house. A worthy house is a receptive house to the message of the apostles. And a worthy house is one that showed hospitality to God's messengers. They were moral. They were receptive. And they were hospitable to God's people. So in other words, I don't know how it happened. I don't know if they just went in the open air and, hey, ladies and gentlemen, I need you to gather around. My name's Peter. This is my brother Andrew. We're followers of Jesus Christ. I need to let you know that he is the Christ. He's the Messiah. And the kingdom is at hand. And whether it be there or down at the synagogue on a Saturday or a Monday or a Thursday, I, in my mind, I'm picturing maybe they're having to ask around, is there a place to stay? Or maybe someone comes up, and I think this probably happened more often than not, because by this point in what's happening in the Gospels, I dare say every one of the 204 villages or towns had at least someone there that had heard Jesus in person and had seen what he could do. And they were a follower and believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as these two men are going, coming into town saying, we're followers of Jesus the Christ, I imagine someone coming up and said, hey guys, listen, where are you two guys staying at? Well, right now we don't know where we're staying. Well, listen, I was just talking to my wife. We just got a little room. It ain't much. But you're welcome to stay at our house if you would. And uh, we'll make you some food. And if you need anything else, we'll do the best you can. Well, thank you for that offer. I need to ask a couple of questions. Number one, what's your household like? Well, we're not perfect. We, we try to live for the Lord and we try to study the Bible and follow the Lord's leading. Second question. What do you think about what you heard me say today? Hey, I think it sounds real. I, I, think, I think he is the Christ. I think the kingdom is at hand. I want to follow Jesus. Well, son, I got one more question for you. What's that? Where do you live? Because <laughs> we're on our way. But notice what Jesus says. Find out where the worthy house is and stay there until you depart. I need to talk to those of us in ministry one more time. Stay there until you depart. I think what the Lord means is, hey, guys, you're not going to be there long, but when you go into that town and you're in a worthy house, you stay. But what if we go like the next day and like the guy that owns Marriott says, hey, where are you staying? Oh, we're over here. Well, dude, I got, I got the rainfall pool and I got the sauna and I got this. I got a huge place. Really? Hey, buddy, thanks for everything. We're out, man. We're over here. You know what the Lord said? No, 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 no. You get a better offer. Don't you take it. You stay where you're at until you're done where you're at. Through the years, I have come across a few people in ministry that I think have a wrong idea about ministry. They're always discontent. They're always got their ears and their eyes out for other opportunities. What's going on? Is there another? They're always like checking doors. Is this door going to be open? They, they, their attitude is they look at the ministry they're at as a stepping stone. They're almost like these people like, I want to be a, be a millionaire by the time I'm 30. Some of these people come out of Bible college and like, by the time I'm this age, I want to have a church of this side, and then by this time, and this one, and this one, and ultimately I want to be at a church that have 5,000 people. Like, seriously? What about the Lord's will? I've already got my will planned out. Stop it. Listen, you work where the Lord has you until the Lord moves you. Stop checking doorknobs all the time. Be where God has you. 
quickly before we hit the fourth thought, and I'll be brief here. So we live in a day where a lot of people, like myself, are in vocational ministry and we receive pay. But our attitude is we're never in it for the money. The attitude of the minister is this. I'm going to do the best I can at no charge. But the attitude of those who are being served is the attitude of giving to support God's servants. There's a pattern in the Bible. It's very clear. You had 11 tribes tithing for the tribe of Levi. So if you want to write this down, I don't have time to develop it because I want to get to the fourth point. In Scripture, here's what the tone we see. God's servants are not to be consumed with their needs. Why? Because they trust the Lord. That's their trust. Not always thinking about, not desperately nor selfishly, always consumed with their needs. Stop being consumed with your needs. Why? Trust the Lord who in turn uses other people to meet those needs. And that's what we find in Scripture. And that should be the attitude of both on each side of that equation. And then lastly, I'll go ahead and say it, and it'll be up in a minute. I know you need to write, but I'm going to go ahead and move into our fourth point. We'll notice, lastly, their acceptance and rejection. Their acceptance, Jesus is shooting straight with them. Hey, guys, as you go, you're going to be accepted in some places, and you're going to be rejected in some places. So look at verse 13 one more time as you write. So we're talking about their acceptance and their rejection. Verse 13, Jesus says, And if the house is worthy... Let your peace come upon it, but if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. Let your peace be on it. If it's not worthy, let your peace come back upon you. I'm going to sound like I'm still on the last point, and in some way I am because I'm going to blend it together. I'll say this. When God's servants, in this case the apostles, when God's servants are treated well and treated properly, listen to me, God knows and God blesses accordingly. When they're treated properly, God knows, and God treats accordingly. When these men were to come into a house, and they give a greeting, shalom. You know what that means? Let the peace of God, the peace of Christ, be on your house as you have brought me in as a representative of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let my peace as an apostle be upon this place. You say, Jeff, what is this shalom? What is this peace? Here's what it literally means. Let your household be blessed spiritually. Let your house be blessed physically. Let your house be blessed relationally. Let your house be blessed financially. Let it be all good on your house. I just look like Joel Osteen. Let it be all good in your house. Uh, ooh, that's scary. Oh, sorry. Delete that before that goes on. That's bad. Stop doing that. Don't do that. You say, Jeff, what is this greeting in peace? Let me tell you what it's not. This is not them coming into the house and these people hosting and treating them right. Okay, an IOU from God. God now owes these people. No, God owes nothing to anyone. It's not an IOU. Here's what it's like. It's like a check from God of blessings. You say, how do you cash that check? By treating his apostles properly. D.A. Carson words it this way. He says, Potiphar's household. Y'all remember Potiphar in, in Genesis? Carson writes, Potiphar's household was blessed because of Joseph's presence. Could you imagine if Joseph had known somebody else come along and says, hey, I, I want to buy that guy from you. Uh, no, he's not for sale. Why is that? 
Business been booming since we brought Joe in. All I know is his God really likes him, and he's staying with me. Now, we know that he ended up getting railroaded by his Potiphar's wife. But here's the fact. Potiphar's household was blessed because of Joseph's presence. Carson writes the following. How much more those homes that harbored the apostles. Can I just real quickly, this is for me and for anyone that the Lord puts this in your heart. It is wise to support those that you know are doing gospel ministry because when you support that, you're sharing in their reward. Whether it be Brian Waters or Brian and Martha Conard, if you have any part in that, you say, we support them as a church, right? But if the Lord lays on your heart to do, it doesn't have to be a huge thing, but the Lord puts on your heart to just be a little special blessing. You're probably not going to regret that. It's probably a smart move. I'll go further. This may go over your head. It's fine. I'll say it. If the Lord puts it upon anybody's heart to be a blessing to Brandon and Kristen Chambers, and you act on that, not because Jeff says it, but if the Lord, and at some Small, medium way, big way. Probably not a bad thing because they're doing the work of the gospel. If the Lord puts it on someone's heart to be a blessing to Mike and Danielle Sturgill, probably not a bad move. I don't think you would regret it. If the Lord were to put it upon your heart to be a blessing to Chris, you say, Chris, a blessing to me. Are you a blessing to Chris? Are you a blessing to Mike and Tracy Barrow? You're like, man, I, I just... Our stuff just looks good, and it's right, and I appreciate that. If you could be a blessing to Mike and Tracy Barrow, God might take note of that. And I don't think you would regret it. I close with these thoughts in verse 14. If anyone will not receive, hey, apostles, as you go, if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or that town. So you say, Jeff, I guess that means if somebody doesn't accept Jesus right away, then we just move on. Listen, did a wedding yesterday for Kyle and Ashley Morgan now, and they both got saved on the same day. They came for five, six weeks before they got saved. This is not talking about people that it takes time for them to process and understand the gospel and receive it. It's not talking about that. This is talking about when someone just blatantly rejects that message like many of the Jews did then you shake off the dust and move on. Here's your last note. Here's, here's a lesson for us. The point in verse 14 is you don't just keep on and on and on when someone is blatantly rejecting the message. Okay, you can try and you go with your apologetics, but you don't just, time is limited. You're only in that town for a short amount of time. Move on to more towns. You're only in that, that area for a little bit of time. If that household is rejecting, move on to another household. Shake the dust of your feet off. And here's a lesson. We need to spend the greatest of our efforts on those who are the most receptive, those who are the most fruitful. Why? Because when our message is the message of the Lord Jesus Christ, then here's the fact. If they reject our message, they're not rejecting us. They're rejecting Christ. And so we, our goal is just make sure our message matches that of Christ. And if our message is the biblical message and they reject it, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting God. They're rejecting the Son of God. I'll say it. What I'm about to say is going to sound very arrogant. I know you're writing, so probably it's a good time to make what sounds like an arrogant statement. Probably the best time to do it. But it's not an arrogant statement. It's a fact. Anyone, again, verse 15. I'm drawing verse 15 in now. 
Jesus says, truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Guys, I can in full confidence tell you, if anyone rejects my message that salvation and eternal life is through God's grace alone. If anybody rejects my message that salvation is by God's grace, I will give you salvation for free. If anybody rejects Jeff Bartlett's message that eternal life is by the grace of God alone, through faith alone, I believe your message, faith in Christ alone, If anybody rejects my message, salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, you will suffer an eternal torment far worse than the Sodomites. You say, that's arrogant. You're not that. That message is not unique to me. That message is the word of God. That message is Christ's message. You reject that message, you're rejecting Christ. You say, how in the world could we have a worse eternity than the Sodomites? Because the people of Sodom never heard what I just said. The people of Sodom never saw a Bible. They never saw an Old Testament. They never heard any portion of the Old Testament. They sure never heard the New Testament. They never heard that Jesus is the Christ and the way of salvation. You say, well, they sure did some abominable things. Sure they did. They mistreated the messengers of God. Sure they did. But they're going to have a bad eternity. But there's not going to be nearly as bad as a bunch of good old boys in good churches all across America who have in their mind wrong theology that homosexuality It's like the worst sin of all. No, 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 buddy. The worst sin of all is if you sit in a good church and you hear the gospel that I just gave a while ago over and over and over and you never truly listen to it, your eternity will be far worse than the Sodomites. Far worse. Why? Because you are sinning against greater light. And you will be sorry. The Bible is clear. Hell is real. Hell is eternal. Hell is horrible, and hell has degrees and levels of punishment. And the worst is for those who've heard a clear presentation of the gospel. You say, but I go to church. You say, I go to church all the time. Wonderful. Have you ever gone to Christ? Have you ever gone to Christ? Would you bow your heads just for a moment? Thank you for your patience. I know I've preached long. Before I pray, I want to challenge you with just a few reviewing thoughts. Please don't reject the gospel. Is there anyone in this room right now this morning, anyone watching online right now, anyone watching later, that in your heart you know, you say, I've heard the gospel many times but you have never put your faith personally in Jesus. You don't remember a time where you confessed your sins to God and took God up on his offer of salvation by trusting Jesus alone, putting away all thoughts of your goodness and anything of your work, what you've done in the past or what you hope to do in the future. Put all of that aside and come to the Lord in repentance. Lord, my sin is horrible. I have no chance of gaining eternal life. But I believe that Jesus is the Savior. If you've never done that, please do that right now because the worst part of hell is reserved for those who've rejected Jesus. To reject Him implies that you have heard it before.
There are two billion people in our world that have never heard what I've talked about this morning. You're not one of them. Don't reject it. Christian, just before I close, can I remind you, you've been called. You've been called. You're not an apostle, but you've been called. You've been empowered. You have the Holy Spirit in you. You've been sent. So here's the question. Do you know our message? Do you know our unique, specific message? Are you giving it? Who can you give it to? Say, Lord, put one person. Let me be focused in my ministry. Let me know the message. Let me give the message. Can I challenge you again? Can you do anything in that person's life, maybe even before you give the message, can you be a blessing to them as an expression of the kindness of God and as an avenue of the gospel? And then, you say, but I don't have a lot. What do you have? Is it a service, an ability, words of affirmation, words of encouragement? Can you love on them in some way? And then ultimately don't stop in that expression of love, but ultimately lead it to the gospel and then leave it in the Lord's hands if they accept or reject. And then just before I pray, those who've been called into unique ministry as the servants of the Lord check our hearts. Don't ever do it for the money. Don't ever do it for any benefit. Our motive is, Lord, I'll do it for free. I serve for free, and I'll do the best I can, and I trust you. And then those of us who are receivers, not just through church ministry and church staffs, in any way, who's the Lord using in your your life? Guys, This message was printed Thursday night. Got an envelope and a card. Somebody's been here twice. Three times counting today. Been here twice. Sent us a gift card to restaurants and a gift card to Dunkin' Donuts. And Lord, may you put your favor upon them. Father, I didn't like this text this week. I thought it was not applicable. I'm sorry. Thank you. As the week went along, you used even this text that was unique to these 12 men that didn't seem to apply to us. Thank you for rattling my cage over and over, and I pray you've done the same with your people today. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.